Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Pensions tax relief. Will the new Chancellor be tempted to tinker at the next budget? And when it comes to property, what's the best investment? A buy-to-let? or a holiday let. And if you're thinking of buying a new car after you listen to this podcast, you might be tempted to lease one instead. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. The government should bite the bullet on pensions tax relief. So says Joe Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent, in a hard-hitting column last weekend. Ahead of the budget on March the 11th, do put the date in your diaries, the well-advised wealthy are once again worrying that pensions benefits could be cut. Joe joins me on the line now. Welcome, Joe. Hello. So ahead of the budget, how worried should we be? I think the chances of an announcement of something more substantial about pension tax, either in the budget or at some point during the life of this parliament, are greater than they have been for many years. Now, I'll go into the reasons for that in a few moments, but we know for certain that there will be pension news in the budget because the government has pledged to use the occasion to tell us how it's going to sort the pension tax problem causing issues for the NHS. Now, regular podcast listeners will be familiar with the NHS pension issue, which has seen doctors turning down over time because they're worried about breaching their annual pension allowances and triggering six-figure tax bills. Now, there's speculation that the government will use the budget to not just unveil a solution to this NHS pension problem, but wider reforms to the system. Now, I can hear listeners saying, now there's speculation every year about the budget and reforms, so why is this this year any different? (laughs) Now, the reason why I think the chances are bigger of an announcement this time is simply because the government has got a commanding majority, and this is a game-changer because they're in a much better position to push through radical changes if they wish to do so. Now, we know that they've thought about making changes to the system before to make it less costly and complex, but they haven't been able to push those changes through because they just haven't had the numbers. And five years ago, for example, George Osborne, the Chancellor, did float proposals that would have seen the removal of upfront tax relief for higher earners. He wasn't able to push those through. There wasn't enough consensus and there was a pushback from MPs worried about voters being unhappy. But now with an 80-seat majority and an expanded voter base, I think the government may want to try or even think about trying to push through changes 
in not this budget, perhaps not in this budget, but at some point during the parliament because they're in a better position to do that. Now, you mentioned George Osborne there, but when he was the guy clutching the red box on budget day, as you said, there was talk um, of radical proposals to perhaps scrap upfront pensions tax relief altogether and replace the pension system with something more akin to an ISA, where you're investing out of your post-tax income, but you don't pay any tax on the money you've saved when you withdraw it. Now, do you think, Joe, that anything that radical um, could still be on the cards or are we talking about the less radical proposal from the Osborne era which was instead of having um, you know a 45, 40 and 20% tax relief depending on whether you're a higher um, or basic rate taxpayer one flat rate um, of tax relief for, for everyone. Do you think either of those two ideas could come back into the mix? Well in short I don't think that this pension idea is going to be back on the table because it was it didn't get support back in 2015. There was not a consensus for it. Um, and I think the government would be hard-pressed to try and push that one forward again, given the opposition from, from the pensions industry and many other areas to, to that proposal. It was just too complex and it would be very, very difficult to implement uh, to the system. I think what's more likely is changes to the current framework of, of the nature that you've just mentioned there, which could include a review of the, the way the lifetime and annual allowances work. Now, the lifetime and an annual allowances govern how much can be saved into a pension tax-free before tax charges apply. The problem with um, what we've seen with the changes or the tweaks of the system to deal with costs of uh, pension tax relief is that the government, the cuts to the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance, the continual cuts, the successive cuts to reduce those, the generosity of those allowances are starting to create the problems that we're seeing in the NHS. So basically the government is running out of of ways to deal with with tax, uh, the cost of tax relief. So that's why there are more calls now and I guess more um, incentive or more, much more of a driver for them to look at more fundamental reform about the way the lifetime allowances and annual allowances work. And also, as you mentioned, uh, the, the way pension tax relief works for people, should we consider something like a flat rate of relief, which may make it uh, more of an incentive for people on lower incomes to save? So that would mean uh, less incentive for higher earners. So there are lots of pros and cons and changes to the system here, but there certainly is a stronger driver for the government now, I believe, to consider changes, bigger changes. Now, wealthier readers um, who are listening to the podcast might be thinking, well, you know, pensions are dead to me anyway, since the introduction um, of this taper, which reduces the amount the highest earners can save into a pension per year to just £10,000, half um, of the current ISA allowance. I mean, what do you think could happen with the taper um, at the budget, what news might we be getting? Okay, what, what would happen? The government says that it's going to announce the results of this review, particularly related to the public sector and to the NHS. But uh, there are a number of things that it could do. It, it could look to scrap the tapered annual allowance. This was the measure that was introduced in 2016 to really clamp down on the uh, tax relief for people with income starting from around £110,000. Now, I think that might be... um, It might resist doing that because it would would be an admission that it was a flawed measure. The Treasury might not want to do that. So what it might consider doing is uh, 
increasing the threshold at which the taper starts to kick in from £110,000, raising that so the taper is kept in place. But it's higher, there's fewer people affected by it. It could also look at doing more specific things for the NHS, just in terms of the way their pensions are accrued or accounted for. But I think that could create problems for other areas, uh, other public sectors, uh, civil servants who are also affected by the TABOR who may want the same solutions. So, oh, yes, dentists you've uh, spoken to, fire service, the police, yes. they're all kind of coming up against Absolutely, and, and judges and also uh, armed service medical personnel who work alongside NHS doctors but aren't getting the same treatment as them in terms of tax solutions, etc. So if that's a problematic solution, if they're going to do something just for the NHS, it could create more problems. The other option, now this has been put forward, supported by the Office of the Tax Simplification, which is the government's own independent advisors on tax affairs, has suggested that the the annual uh, changes to the annual allowance and lifetime allowance. The annual allowance should be scrapped for DB schemes and it should just have a, a lifetime allowance for DB, whereas um, just to keep it simple. Um, they've also suggested um, changes for DC, uh, defined contribution schemes as well. Predominantly DB schemes are what public sector um, save into. So that would be more of uh, a fundamental reform to the current system. Now, I think if the government uh, is looking at dealing with the problem of the taper, it, uh, it, it has problems if it's just going to try and keep this um, as a solution, uh, an NHS solution, and, and fundamentally if it's going to continue cutting the lifetime allowance or annual allowance to deal with the costs of um, pension tax relief, it's going to create more problems across the public sector. So I think that ultimately and eventually we will see a, a wider review of the way uh, the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance uh, is working in the system. Well, I guess the advice in the meantime is pay in what you can while you still can. Well, thanks very much there to Joe Cumbo. You can read her column, Why the Government Should Bite the Bullet on Pensions Tax Relief, now on ft.com slash money. In all his years as a financial advisor, Seven Investment Management's Michael Martin has always been quite downbeat, sniffy, you could say, about buy-to-let property investments. Yet last weekend, he wrote a column in the money section telling readers why he's changed his mind and has recently bought a second property in Edinburgh. What a turn up for the books. And Michael joins us now in the studio to tell us all about it. Welcome, Michael. Hello there. Well, firstly, well done on admitting that you've changed your mind about something in print, because there aren't many columnists, frankly, who are are prepared to do that. But let's start off with historically why you have disliked um, buy-to-let property as an investment. So there'll be one that most people say it's because as an investment manager and a financial advisor, we can't make any money out of property. But that's not actually the true reason. The the two reasons really are that it's it's tax and hassle, really. Firstly, the tax system has changed fundamentally. And even even before, when you could offset mortgages, with, this, with capital gains tax and income tax, I want to be able to manage those for clients. I want to be able to manage the capital gains tax and manage the income tax for people going forward. And as I said in my column, you can't sell 300 bricks on a house. You have to sell it all. So it's a big lump of capital gains tax or nothing. The other aspect is 
I've had a lot of clients who have had property and actually done very well out of property who just say, I'd never buy another house. The hassle I've had from them, you know, about getting tenants out, they've, they've ruined the house, they've absolutely wrecked the place. Getting tenants to pay the rent, as many of the online comments Exactly. Getting yeah. tenants to pay the rent, evicting them, getting legal advice, then turning up and finding out that your home that you haven't perhaps seen for 18 months or two years is absolutely wrecked. That, to me, is a bigger problem. I would like people to, when they retire, not have to worry that someone's ruining their their asset. So all valid criticisms. Um, But how on earth did you justify your relatively recent purchase in Edinburgh? So the tax rules are are much much better in a short-term furnished holiday let. As I used to always read about these in exam questions, you know, you never really came across people with these, but now they're becoming more and more prevalent. The reason also is... It really only goes about four or five days without someone going in and cleaning my flat to check it, to make sure it's okay. You know, you don't have any issues with with sitting tenants, staying there for two or three years. You don't have any problem. If someone's bad, they they they, they leave after a couple of days and then you can clear up after them. So it's a very, you, you're always looking after your flat. You're always knowing what's happening with it. And so the hassle isn't really there because I have a cleaner that goes in and cleans it, which is fantastic. And no, there's nothing really of any note that's happened in the 18 or so months that I've held it for. But but the tax is very good. You know, the tax the tax breaks are, are quite good for short-term furnished holiday lets, which you can pay the money into your pension, you can offset your expenses, and when you come to sell, you can use entrepreneur's relief, which basically means you pay a 10% tax when you sell your property instead of a 28% tax at the end. And of course, with short-term holiday lets, as opposed to conventional tenancies and buy-to-lets, you've also got the massive digital um, advantage of all kinds of sites now, not just Airbnb, there are no. many others, um, but it's just much easier to find people who want to book your property online. It is indeed. I think So uh, my, my property is on about four or five different sites. So it, it's not just Airbnb, there are others you know, that are able to, to let the property. So yes, it goes out to a massive amount of people and it does bring people into Edinburgh. Now, it also brings your family um, yes. into Edinburgh, but you can only stay there yourself under the tax rules for how many nights? Well, you, you, you can actually stay there for a reasonable length of time, actually. Um, but you've actually got to make it available for a certain amount of, of time. But it's it's not, you know, you, you are able to stay a reasonable amount of time to be able to get the, the tax benefits you wish. So for me, it's a fantastic benefit that I can I can go there on holiday with my family. I, we have an office there, so I can go and work there. And it's, it's um, you know, it's rented out to other people when I'm not there. So it's actually a perfect solution for me, I would say. And um, if we've got any landlords um, listening to the podcast, obviously they're going to be interested in, in the yield. But, you know, the so-called Airbnb yield um, mm-hmm. on holiday lets is um, often much higher than a conventional um, year-long tenancy. It is indeed. And, uh, you know, a few people have, have commented on the yield thing. And one person in the comment section of the um, of the website said it's not all about yield and then told me the yield of his property, which is quite interesting. <laughs> um, but um, it, it it is interesting. There will be certain pockets where yield will be better. But what I wanted to do was buy a place in a, in a, in a city I knew. So I, I chose either London, where I live, or Edinburgh, where my family are from when I go and visit quite a lot. Because I wanted to know what that sort of area was like, what the what the property business was like, you know, know where to buy, know what people, what sort of people like to live in those sort of areas. So I sort of restricted my looking to 
two places I knew reasonably well. I didn't want to buy a house in, in Huddersfield because I know nothing about Huddersfield. I don't ever go to Huddersfield. So you might get a good yield there, but I don't know anything about the, the area. So that's why you know, people were saying there's some areas where you can get a 10% yield. Perhaps there is, but I don't know anything about that. Stick to what you know. Good advice. Now, not all of your friends, however, approve of your purchase, as you wrote in your column. Well, exactly. It, it, it's interesting to see the different moralities of um, how people, you know, are. I, for example, the the person who was particularly upset happened to work for a private bank that advised um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's fund, which some other people might think was slightly dubious as well. So different people's moralities are, are upon different things are quite are quite interesting. I do agree, though. I do agree that I've taken a property away from, from someone who could live in the area. But I don't think the answer is stopping people buying buy-to-let or, or short-term furnished holiday lets. What I would say is I would introduce some sort of tourist tax on areas like that, use that money as a fund that's actually earmarked for affordable housing in an area with good transport links to Edinburgh and other places, so that I'm just not sure who would be buying my property apart from a professional who was who was living there, earning a reasonable amount of money? I don't think it solves a housing crisis by not buying that. But I think if they charged me a couple of pounds a night to everyone who stayed there, and did that to everyone in Edinburgh, and put that aside and bought some and built some properties on the outskirts of Edinburgh for for people who need them, I think that would be a great solution. Now you say that, Michael. Some of the people who come into the Arscourt seem to be convinced that towns that are very popular with short-term holiday lets, obviously Cornwall is frequently mm-hmm. in the news, yes. um, Brighton, um, Edinburgh, lots of complaints um, about the comings and goings from, from various different properties. The planning system um, could be used to um, restrict or indeed maybe um, enable such a tax to be collected. How would you feel about that? Well, I, I, I think, you know, the planning system, I've, I've actually got a client in, in Cornwall who is trying to build a house to live in and he is unable to live in it until he's rented it or tried to rent it for two years. And it's a very small hamlet he lives in and it's incredibly strange that because to me I would have thought they'd be trying to encourage people to live in a, in, in rural places in Cornwall. So the planning system is a little bit odd at the moment that... They're not. They're saying to people, you know, don't rent and don't kill communities. But also, when someone else is trying to, to, to build a community and make a, a village bigger, they say, wait a minute, or we don't want to. There are unintended this consequences. That's it, exactly. So it's very tricky to sort of to to manage this. But I do think the answer to most of these things is tax people to an appropriate level and then do something with that tax. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much to Michael Martin, private client manager of Seven Investment Management and FT Money columnist. You can read his column now, Why I Changed My Mind About Buy to Let, on ft.com slash money. Huge numbers of Britons don't actually own the car that's parked on their drive. Instead, they've taken out financing deals known as PCPs, short for personal contract plans. Well, we've talked about the pitfalls of PCPs quite a bit on this podcast, but freelance writer Nick Johnstone argued in last week's FT Money section that leasing a car long term could be a more cost effective option. He joins me on the line now. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Claire. So your story started when your last PCP deal was coming to an end and you were asked to stump up something called a balloon payment so that you could finally own your fiat. That's right. Yes, with PCP, um, you're basically paying off the depreciation on uh, via monthly instalments. 
And then when you come to the end of the depreciation phase, you um, then are faced with the balloon payment, which if you pay that, you take ownership of the car. And if you don't, um, then the manufacturer obviously can sell um, sell the car on and recoup the rest of the money by, by selling it. So I think like a lot of people who take PCP, you're one foot in and one foot out. So you, you've always got the option of potentially owning the car and you always have the option of potentially handing it back and having nothing to do with it by the time it's depreciated, um, <clears throat> which is what the balloon payment marks, really, the point where the car is no longer of particular value. Well, you were asked to come up with quite a hefty um, balloon payment and moaned about this to your father-in-law, and he encouraged yes. you to ditch PCP for PCH, um, personal contract hire, which is essentially right. leasing the car without the option to to own it at the end. So yeah. how did that appear? I mean, I think most people um, who are using car finance in the UK will, will typically use PCP, and I think it's the, the, the softest, easiest uh, entry point for nearly everybody. And certainly sort of four, four or so years ago, PCP seemed like the safest and most flexible option. Um, but in, in the states where my father-in-law lives, leasing obviously has been around for you know, probably three, four decades now. And it's a much more um, mainstream type of purchase. I think nearly 30% of all car finance deals in the states are leasing. So he'd moved to this and was telling me, well, there's no, you know, we don't have anything like a balloon payment. You're, you're literally paying the depreciation off a month um, per month. And at the end of the fixed contract term, you just hand the car back. So I think um, the state is always quite far ahead with this. I mean, there are now companies like Fair and FlexDrive who are doing subscription-only leasing, which they've been called the Netflix for you know Netflix for cars, um, where you literally would just pay a monthly subscription, and which sounds like leasing on steroids, really. Mm, well, you um, said in your piece, usership, but... usership rather than ownership. Um, I don't know That's if I right. like the word usership, but it's um, yes, quite accurate. It is. I think you. I think usership as a concept is is coming along. I think um, uh, Sebastiano Federigo, uh, boss at Leases, the um, the leasing arm of Fiat Chrysler, he made the point in the article at the weekend that you know, in the same way that we've moved away from vinyl and CDs with music towards Spotify, we're get, we're kind of being re uh, recultured and rebuilt in our minds about the idea of what we must actually own and. I think whether it's Airbnb or uh, Boris Bikes or Spotify, cars, in theory, should go the same way, even though obviously it's generally the second biggest purchase that we'll get involved in in our lifetimes after property. And you also mentioned in your article that leasing um, via a PCH contract can work out to be a better deal, particularly on the higher value cars, FD readers might yeah. be. Yes, a lot, of, a lot of people from the leasing side of the industry that I interviewed for the article um, told me that there are a lot of people who are coming to leasing and, and for example, as that figure showed, taking a lease out on something like a Range Rover who um, would not be buying a Range Rover in cash and probably would find PCP or HP unaffordable and probably wouldn't be able to get a personal loan through, say, their high street bank also to buy a vehicle of such prestige and um, expense. So leasing really, it also gives a gateway to perhaps have a, a bit of status on the driveway um, at an incredibly affordable price, which I think you know, in this country we quite like that.
Well, quite. Although FT readers, it has to be said, were quite divided um, in the more than 250 comments that were left um, at the bottom of your piece. Now, a lot of them, this is why I love FT readers, much thriftier. Uh, They don't want the status symbol on the drive and they don't want to be paying interest on a PCP or paying over the odds to hire um, a, a flashy car. And a great deal of them said, that buying secondhand was a much more cost-effective um, option. Now, the, the most liked comment on your piece was from a reader whose who's online pseudonym is Get Off Me. Um, and, and he says, I drove an old Vauxhall Cavalier for years, bought it at 18 months old, laughed when someone added to the collection of dents in the car park and was a little sad when over a decade later it went to the great scrapyard in the sky on a very impressive I have to say 296,000 miles. I never worried about leaving it in dodgy areas or railway station car parks over the weekends. Somebody hit me from behind once and their insurance company gave me over a grand to go away. I knocked out the worst with a hammer and spent it on a nice holiday in South America. And then he adds I retired at 55. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, I think, you know, cars are really uh, such a personal thing, even though, you know, we're essentially talking about a hunk of metal and it can seem like quite a banal topic. Um, I think people feel much the same way about their cars as they do about their pets and their children. It's quite um, quite an emotive field. And you do hear these war stories of um, people you know, driving a car that, that clocks 296,000 miles. I, I think that's great. I mean, what, lucky reader is all I can say. Um, because my experience of, sort of buying a, a used car when I was much younger, um, that was three or four years old, is within months of, of buying this thing, I was taking it in for everything you can think of, the clutch going wrong, the axle, the brakes, uh, and it became so expensive that I wish I'd never gone near a used car. So the, I think you do hear a lot of those stories as much as you do hear these great sort of, you know, they're almost like pub stories of... Um, you know, my old banger that ran 300,000 miles, which, um, you know, everyone would love to have a car that, that is that economical, obviously. Yeah, although one reader, Tom P, says the only sensible way to buy a car is to buy a three to four-year-old car coming off one of these fool's bargain finance deals <laughs> and then run it for as long as it meets your needs, which I suppose is um, is fair enough. There, there are an awful lot of these um, PCP contracts that are coming to an end, so that, that could be a good strategy for, for other listeners in future. But th- there was one final comment from, from a reader called We're All Doomed um, who yeah. took issue with the fact that um, on your newly leased um, car that you've taken out, you decided to put a bumper sticker um, on the back. And uh, she says, has anyone else wondered why you would damage your car with a sticker that will be <laughs> Im- Im- impossible to remove when it's time to hire the least car, when it's time to hand <laughs> the least car That's a back? fantastic point. What I, in fact, what I didn't say in the article is the, the exact same bumper sticker um, was on the Fiat that we had before the Jeep. And when my wife put it on, I said to her, oh my God, that's going to be, you know, hundreds of pounds worth of damages. Because if you look online about bumper stickers, people talk about trying to get them off and the paint comes off. But thanks to um, the wonders of YouTube, I found a bizarre technique where you use WD-40 spray and a credit card. And the thing literally peels off like it was never on there, even after several years. So um, I'm not going to uh, put us that make us liable for that crazy technique. But anybody who wants to look it up on YouTube, it, it, it certainly worked for me.
Brilliant. Well, another use um, for your credit card indeed. Well, thank you very much there to Nick Johnstone, freelance writer. Thank you. You can read his article online now on ft.com slash money. That's all from the FT Money Show this week. If you would like to get in touch with our writers and teams of experts, you can email us at money at ft.com or follow us on Twitter for all of the latest news alerts. Our handle is at FT Money. The Money Show is produced in London by Lucy Warwick-Ching. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.